Today's Real Talk, todaysrealtalk.com, Justin Kazepis, 844-STUDIO-4. Give us a call if you've got some questions about real estate. Plenty of time left in the day. We're going to get those questions answered for you. Looking forward to a great show today. Talking about commercial real estate, mostly going to talk about multifamily commercial real estate. But some of these things we're going to talk about today can apply across the board in investing in real estate, whether you're talking about single family residential, whether you're talking about commercial, whether that be ground up development or multifamily value add projects. And to help explain some of these concepts and work through these processes is going to be Dante Belmonte. He's going to join us from Victory Capital Group, a young gun out of New York, but buying up multifamily value add properties. Bought a couple recently here in North Carolina, so excited to hear and get his take on the market here in North Carolina. So you're going to want to stick around, but let's talk about why. Why would you invest in real estate? Why wouldn't you just go and buy uh, stocks or bonds or any other type of investment vehicle? Why real estate? And when I think about that, uh, I come to two conclusions. Number one is scarcity. God's not making any more dirt right now. I don't know if you've noticed that. Uh, But as of right now, the amount of dirt that there is to build on is set making it a finite resource, making it limited from a supply perspective and thus making it valuable. We all have to have a place to live. We all want a place to do business, and that takes real estate. And what you can do with that real estate is produce passive cash flow. And that, my friends, is the name of the game. Can you produce enough income passively, and we can debate active and passive all day, but assuming you can set up a system to create passive cash flow, enabling you to control the most finite resource there has ever been, and that's time. You see, we all have the same 24 hours in a day. The people who can pick and choose and control what they do with those 24 hours, in my opinion, my humble opinion, are the winners of that game. And so that's what I strive for, to be able to pick and choose what I want to do in those 24 hours each and every day. You see, for me, I'd prefer to just spend time with my family, but maybe you've got different goals. I'm not going to lie, I like to get on the golf course when I can. I like to eat some good food. I like to go on vacations. All of those things that if you could choose what you would do with your day, what does it take? It takes money. And so investing in an asset that produces continuous cash flow, but also there's another layer to that risk. Again, we all need a place to live. We all want a place to do business. So that's what makes real estate unique is where does it land in a risk level? Traditionally speaking, real estate, residential in particular, is a less risky asset to invest in because, again, the need and desire of every human being on this planet to want a place to live, the necessity of a place to do business. And if you own that asset where people live and where they work, that they know they need and highly desire, you are in a place to create cash flow. Now, a lot of people think commercial real estate is fancy. I'm not an expert, so I can't invest in commercial real estate. No, that's not true. Are there complicated deals? Absolutely. There's complicated things in everything. Is it avocado oil or coconut oil that's in that dish? Or is it vegan, gluten-free, blah, 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 right? Anything can be complicated. 
I'm still learning the difference between diced and minced. But you have an opportunity. We all have an opportunity. Take it in bite-sized chunks. I'd say number one piece of advice I can give you, get a mentor. Find somebody who's in real estate at the level you want to get to or is on their way to that similar level that you want to get to and learn. Learn, learn, learn. Learn as much as you can. One of the big things you've got to learn to understand and get into real estate are terms. So a lot of terms that you'll hear some of which you'll probably hear today, cap rate, cash on cash return, internal rate of return, debt versus equity. You see, definitions and terms are what people use when quantifying a particular investment opportunity. So let's walk through a couple because what I want to help you do is get a baseline understanding of certain terms in commercial real estate. The number one term by and far you're going to hear is cap rate. So what is the cap rate? The cap rate is the net operating income divided by the amount invested into the asset. So it is shown as a percentage. You take the net operating income, which are your what are called above the line expenses, doesn't include debt, your cap rate, your net operating income divided by the total amount you've got invested. So if your net operating income is $100,000 and invested into the property was $1 million, you would take $100,000 divided by $1 million, and that gets you a cap rate of 10%. Now, this is just a snapshot of how the property is currently performing because you take it on a today basis, what is the net operating income divided by the amount you would be purchasing the asset for. And then over time, you can project what that cap rate becomes. Maybe you can increase rent. Maybe you can decrease expenses. Maybe the market uh, continues to allow for a smaller cap rate, a compressing cap rate, thus increasing your sales price. And then you've also got cash on cash return. So taking the amount of cash you've invested divided by, again, the amount of cash you are keeping from the deal, that shows you your cash on cash return. Then you've got internal rate of return, similar to cash on cash return, But what internal rate of return does is it considers the amount of time. You see, there's a general principle in real estate that money now, cash generated now, is more valuable than cash generated later. And that's because of inflation. And we are in the middle, we are in the middle of an inflation cycle right now. So internal rate of return is an extremely fancy and complicated formula that you can do, but most people cannot do by hand on paper. So Excel has a function for that. There's a equation for that rather than, there's probably an app for that too. And then you've got debt versus equity. Typically, I'll tell you the most common commercial real estate structure. You'll see 70% of the acquisition cost, right? The purchase price And that can include some development costs or uh, renovation costs, land costs, right? All in costs, let's say, 70%. So that leaves 30% worth of an investment in equity. And that's where you start getting into whose capital is it being invested into a property to account for that 30% worth of equity. And you've got general partners, also known as sponsors. And then you've also got limited partners. Those are the people just putting cash in the table to make a return on their investment. 
A lot of different things to learn, but again, take it in bite-sized chunks. We're excited to have you today to go down this roll, this road of multifamily value-add investing. Again, Dante Belmonte, he's going to be on with us shortly. 844-STUDIO-4, that's the phone number. If you've got questions, 844-STUDIO-4, give us a call. We'd love to help answer your real estate questions. Justin Kazepis, Today's Real Talk, todaysrealtalk.com. Today's Real Talk, Justin Kazepis, 844-STUDIO-4. Still time to get your questions in if you've got something you want to figure out about this real estate game. It's wet and wild right now out there, uh, just the wild, wild west. And uh, joined by Dante Belmonte uh, of Victory Capital Group. Dante focuses on multifamily value-add properties. Basically, he buys a property, makes it even better, makes a bunch of money, and helps his investors make a bunch of money too. Dante, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, most definitely, Justin. Thank you for uh, bringing me on the show. Really excited to chat with you today and add some value to your listeners. Yeah. So Dante, give me your background. You're not like, you haven't been in this game for 40 plus years. So you are of the new age of multifamily investing. Tell me how you got started and kind of what your journey has been thus far. Yeah, definitely. So I'm 24 years old right now. I've been in real estate for about four years now. Started out on the multifamily brokerage side of things. So actually brokering the deals, seeing what you know experienced investors were doing, how they were buying and selling, learning from them, a few mentors I had uh, along the way. And I uh, started out small in my hometown and now you know raising capital, buying uh, larger multifamily deals in growth markets such as North Carolina. And we can definitely get into all that and chat with that a little bit more. So when you say uh, North Carolina, what are the markets you're liking right now in North Carolina? Where are you at? Where are you looking to be? Yeah, so, you know, definitely like the Charlotte MSA, following that I-85 corridor through Greensboro, Winston-Salem, the Raleigh-Durham area, the Research Triangle, and then uh, kind of bouncing out to Greenville, North Carolina, which is on the uh, east side of the state there. So uh, really enjoy those areas directly outside of Charlotte, I should say, like the Concord, the Hickory, um, that is pricing makes sense still, where sometimes in that Charlotte MSA, it doesn't make sense. So uh, again, happy to talk all about that, but all the areas that a lot of people that are in the Southeast in North Carolina specifically are looking. So there certainly is a lot of competition in those spaces. Yeah. And when you, when you analyze a property, right, give me, what do you think percentage wise of the, uh, you get your eyes on, on the deal, you get your eyes on paper. How many uh, are you underwriting? And then how many do you think land to make it to the next level? Is it 1%, 5%, 10%? How how many of those are you looking at a day or a week? Yeah, definitely. So, you know, great question. I actually have a tracker that tracks all this that we're looking at. So really before we even look at the deal, we look at the market. So if a broker sends us the deal, we're going to look at that immediate smaller market, that smaller, you know, township, the MSA. And if it doesn't have growth over the last decade, and especially the last year, positive population growth, uh, we can just throw the deal right off the table. But once it does, we start looking at the numbers, we actually start underwriting. Um, We'll probably look at anywhere from 80 to 100 deals before we actually do one deal. And not offer on one deal, that's actually get a contract accepted and execute and close on one deal. So I'd say out of every 100 deals, literally one or two we're actually doing out of all the deals. And those are deals that we're actually looking at, underwriting, pulling comps on, um, and going through the motions with. How much of your deal flow would you say comes from brokers versus, let's say, you pulling up you know, some type of GIS mapping system and cold calling uh, landowners? Uh, almost 100% of our leads come from brokers, and that's because they're doing this all day. This is what they specialize in is building relationships, finding deals, adding value to individuals that will eventually want to sell with them. And we know how much time, money, and effort they spend in their teams and we don't really want to step into that arena because we'll have to put the same resources and effort in place to uh, e- even match what they're doing or even get you know our toe in the water. So brokers are definitely bringing us the deals. Uh, now that we have a, you know, a good track record in that market that we close, we're doing multiple deals and we're doing a great job with our deals and we, we, you know, we don't retrade any of that stuff. We're getting a lot more off market deals. So that's definitely increasing our deal flow where a lot of newer investors right now may not be seeing deals the brokers are bringing them directly to us. And that's why. When you when you are looking and comparing, let's say an on market versus off market, 
is the value of the off market typically the sales price? Is it the co- the fees associated with getting the deal closed? Where do you see that differentiation really come in when we talk about on versus off market? Yeah, definitely. Great question. So uh, today we closed on a 44 unit right outside of Charlotte today, and that was uh, 100% off market. And the reason why we really found value in that deal was because of the price. You know, this building, 1982, 44 units, we bought at 89,000 a door versus literally a block away, an on market asset that was 10 years older. So 1972, same exact, you know, type of building sold for 130,000 a door. So right away, you know, value as to what we're purchasing and where the rents are in both buildings, we feel that our price and our basis that we're going into is very safe and very comfortable. And that's because there's not as many eyes on it. So, you know, the broker that we've closed the deal with before brought it to two groups. We were one of those two groups. We actually came in lower than the other group, but we had more experience with that broker and in that market. And they felt very comfortable just giving us that deal to make it a nice, clean, easy deal because the seller was also very skittish their only asset they've never sold before. They don't know how it works. They didn't want it marketed. They didn't want to scare the tenants or the property manager. So we're able to do, uh, we actually did a 28 day close, raised the capital, got the debt, everything in 28 days, which is, it's not unheard of. It definitely happens, but it's not very common. I, I, I would call it impressive at a 28 day close um, uh, from from under contract to, to getting it getting the thing done. I think a lot of people who want to be in real estate now, which I'm sure in multiple markets you're in, you've seen, there's definitely been an upward trend of just generally people who think, okay, it's time I want to get into real estate. And so multifamily, I think is kind of that um, from a development world of municipalities, um, it's almost frowned upon because, hey, you're just bringing density. But from an investor perspective, it's kind of that golden child, right? Of, hey, this is cash flow. This is people yep. have to have somewhere to live. I want multifamily deals. And so as you've progressed through through your experiences, what do you think has been the biggest learning lesson you've had thus far? Uh, definitely going bigger, faster, and getting larger assets. So when I say larger, I'm talking like, you know, 40, 50 units and greater because that smaller stuff is very difficult to manage, you know. We bought a 24 unit uh, early on and it was more difficult to manage. We actually had to switch out the property management company because we couldn't have on-site staff. And that's something we didn't know. You know, you don't know until you know, essentially. And uh, when we learned that you didn't have on-site staff, you had one person that was managing it, but they're also managing 10 other communities that are 24 units. You're not getting all that specialty, that attention, the reports you need versus our slightly larger assets. You know, we have property management, there's leasing offices, uh, we get a lot more attention and that's going to help us uh, run the property much better. Collections are going to be better and where there's a better line of communication as well because there's a lot more focus on that singular asset. Now, when you say on-site management, do you bring in a third-party manager or do you guys hire on your own payroll for your managers? Yeah, so we're definitely bringing on uh, third-party property management. So it's a third-party team that has the systems, the processes in place, has the teams and where we don't quite have that yet. We'd like to, especially once we get enough uh, unit density in one area where we can bring on our own payroll, our own staff. We have complete control. You know, we, we treat our property managers like employees, but this way, when we have that payroll staff, it can be our true employees. We run the show um, and keeping things in house will also make it a little bit uh, more cost effective if you would. I find, um, so my, my track as, as I progress, I became a real estate broker in 2012, licensed attorney in 2015, started doing my own investing in 2017. You develop in your own niche, um, that gut feeling, right? Like, like, like when you've got that, you've got that feeling on some deals, like this one feels right. Oh yeah. yeah. What's that signal? Like, is it like a tingle on the back of the spine for you or what, what's kind of that, that signal for you to know, Hey, this is the one right here. Yeah. So, you know, when we're doing our research and, you know, for example, our property we closed on two months ago, uh, we, I, I always go to other syndicators, webinars, I keep up, I'm on their mailer list. So I want to see what other people in the market are doing, it's being active, you know, knowledge is power. And, you know, we bought this 1992 asset at 64 a door. It was just a great purchase basis. We were able to get in real low and we're watching other people in this market buy the same exact building built by the same builder, same vintage, everything, similar rents for a hundred thousand a door. And that just kind of like triggers us and lets us know we bought a really good deal on a basis price. We got to operate it right because that's only half the battle is getting in a good price. The operations are key and, you know, it kind of gives you goosebumps when, you know, you just bought right. The investors are going to be happy. They're going to make a great return on their investment. 
and they're going to tell their friends, they're going to tell their family, they're going to do it with you again, and we get some referrals that way as well. Yeah, I, I try to explain to people, so many people focus on the exit, right? Like, oh man, I made this much money on the exit. It's like, yeah, but but how much did you actually make? Because what were you in at? And, that, and that's what people who get started in real estate see the dollars on the exit, but they don't see that initial investment piece and how much skill it takes to analyze and know, okay, this is the right entry point. Because if you okay. come in at the wrong place and you've got, let's say, an uptick in interest rates, right? And your commercial loan is coming to balloon and you have to reset here in the next 12 to 24 months, uh, you could be in a world of hurt for some people. Oh, yeah. And I imagine yep. there will be some people that are over leveraged and we're going to see that. But uh, when you when you jump into a deal, right, you guys have a four-step process from what I can see of the Victory Capital Group, right? So what what is that process and, and how, how did you guys come about to, to get to that and, and quantify it that way? Yeah, definitely. So, you know, like I said, we're looking at the market first. That's going to be the biggest piece. The market's going to dictate it. You know, you, you can change a lot about a building, but you can't change a lot about the fundamentals of the location and where, you know, what's surrounding it. So that's going to be the first thing we're doing. You know, I go to Google Street View. I go to, the, you know, the income in that area. I take a look around. I say, you know, are there vacant retail spaces? Are there pawn shops? Are there used car dealerships? If, if I see those things, we're not too attracted to that area. But if I see things like, uh, Lowe's, Starbucks, Five Guys, Chick-fil-A, um, Whole Foods, things of those companies that do a lot of research and they know where they want to be. They spend millions of dollars a year in research on where growing areas, uh, heavily populated areas and areas that have the income that can support those shops are going to be. So that's kind of like the first step we're going to look at. Uh, then the second step is I'm just going to look at the purchase price and say, well, you know, what are they asking? If I know on a price per unit basis, I don't even have to look at the financials. If it makes sense, then we'll, we'll, we'll kind of dig a little deeper at it. But if it's first day on the market and it's 30,000 a unit too high, then we just know it's really not worth our effort and our time at that moment. Maybe we'll make a lower offer that aligns accordingly with that, but usually we won't because we know we're just gonna get outbid by crazy and it just doesn't make sense. Um, then if you know the purchase price looks like from a distance, it makes sense. Then we're gonna dig into those financials and we're gonna make sure, uh, you know, are there any ebbs and flows in any of the collections or the expenses? If so, why is that? You know, we, we analyze the T12, you know, we print it out, we highlight it, we make notes, we ask the broker the questions, and then we're gonna go to and we're actually gonna underwrite and we're gonna make some debt assumptions, some strong debt assumptions. We're not just gonna throw something on the wall and hope it sticks. We're actively talking to our mortgage brokers every week, every day, what's going on in the market, what are you seeing? And we're not bothering them for every asset we underwrite because they, we'd be bothering them hundreds of times a year and they would just kind of brush us off uh, eventually. It's really, we start talking with them property specific once we have a signed LOI for the most part. Um, and we do this enough and we've closed enough loans and you know within certain time periods, like I said, we did one last month, we're doing the one this month that we're closing and we know where, the typical terms are going to be. So we'll input those in so we can be pretty close on. And so once we get that underwriting honed in and we're comfortable, we make the offer, we send out the LOI and I'm doing this all from my desk. You know, I haven't gotten up yet. I haven't done a single thing. I've done this all from my desk. Once that LOI goes out and the broker says, Hey, there's a good chance this is going to get accepted or we'd like to get you on site. I'm in upstate New York. We're buying in North Carolina. My partner's in Charlotte. So that's when I'm going to send him out and say, Hey DJ, you know, if you got an LOI on the table, they're pretty comfortable about it. I'm gonna need you to go to this property at this time with this broker. So I kind of cue them up. I'm putting the ball on the tee essentially. And I'm gonna send him some comps too, rent comps and sale comps. So when he's in the area, he's gonna go drive those. Because we all know a deal looks really good on paper, but it can look very different once you get on site. And it's very important that you get on site immediately. Um, once we do and everything looks good, we'll evaluate if we still wanna move forward or if it's something we wanna hold off on and like I said, I, I, you know, I teed that ball up for DJ. He's going to knock it out of the park because once we go under contract, that's when he takes over. He's going to take the baton and start running with it. He's doing our legal work, working with the PSA, with our attorneys. We're on the back end. I'm getting all of our investors ready. I'm getting all the documents ready. I'm getting a professional photographer to the property. And then the exciting part, you know, when we get under contract, that's when I fly down. I go, you know, love at first sight. You get to the property. It's the first time I'm seeing it get excited driving around, seeing the comps, walking the units. And, you know, there, there's a lot more steps in the process to get to closing and all that. But that's really the nitty gritty of how we're, you know, moving from step one to getting under contract and starting that due diligence.
So on the T12, the trailing 12 um, past, t- past 12 months of the financials, do you ever uh, get nervous if you ask for it and they say, oh, we don't have anything or here's back of the napkin or uh, here's, uh, you know, 24 months and some receipts or 36 months? Or, or does it, is that one of those points where you're like, okay, wait a second, this is adding again to that good feeling. We might have one of those golden child, you know, value add properties right here. Which way does it go for you typically? Yeah, so it, it's twofold because one, if we don't have the information, then we have to make an educated offer where without the information, we're still safe. And sometimes that puts us out of the game. But other times it immediately tells us we have a mom and pop seller who really hasn't recognized the value on these assets. And that's where we can go in. Property we closed on today, mom and pop seller, they live three hours away. This is the only property they own. They've owned it for 10 years. They've renovated but they're $300 below market because their property manager lives in a unit for free, isn't a real property manager, and that's their property management. It gets compensated a free unit. So she has no you know, no background, no experience. So we saw so much value with this where we don't actually have to put in a lot of capital, which is safe in the uh, standpoint that we don't have a lot of capital into the deal. So all the renovations are done. We're still going to go in and do some things, freshen up, you know, clean up. But it's really more of an operation standpoint. We're going to come in with a professional third-party management company, execute on the business plan. And again, that's where it gets kind of you know juicy and we see lots of value there. So when you talk about the LOI or the letter of intent, which in the commercial world is the step before the contract, basically the only thing it's really designed to do is make it to where in good faith, you're the exclusive group that that particular property owner is going to negotiate a contract with. That's the ultimate yep. purpose for those who don't know or have it, don't have experience with an LOI. It's not designed to be the contract itself. However, legally speaking, it, if you make it too uh, robust, it could be interpreted as a contract, but that not, might not be a negative for some. Dante, do you take the perspective of putting the least amount of details in the LOI, or do you like to flush out that LOI so there's no like surprises or back-end uh, more renegotiations when that first draft of a contract comes out? Yeah, so we like to make it fairly simple. Uh, LOIs, in my opinion, are made to be simple, where here, here's you know what we're willing to pay. So if I just pull up our, our template, essentially, it's two pages. You know, it's got our... our uh, logo at the top it's going to say our you know who's purchasing it what the purchase price is purchase and sale agreement timeline you know the emd you know earnest money due diligence time when we need the seller to deliverable documents for our due diligence we always put a closing extension in there and i think that's really important a lot of people overlook that is it's literally one line closing extension or two lines i should say purchaser reserves the right to give a written notice extending the closing date by X amount of days with an additional positive X amount. I think that's super important and people need to make sure they have that in their LOI or at least have it in your purchase contract. Because if you get to those 60 days and you can't close for some reason, you're stuck holding the bag trying to negotiate when the ball is not in your court and nothing's agreed upon. Get that agreed upon up front. Sorry, I went a little off off, off key there. That's important. Um, it is. And then just closing, like how soon do you plan on closing on this asset? And then it just basically says, you know, this LOI expires in seven days and you have X amount of days to translate this over to a PSA. And then we sign, we give the seller a place to sign as well. So it's very easy, cut and dry, quick and fast, whether you're an institutional seller or you're a mom pop seller, this should be very easy to understand and read. And if you can't, you should have a broker and attorney there that can help them understand that. So Again, very quick and easy where we can shoot these things out in bulk to get a few of them to come back, and it's very easy to understand. It's it's interesting because um, setting aside price, because obviously at the end of the day, everyone, you know, highest highest effort is on price. But for, as a broker, as an attorney, and as an investor directly, there's always two components to every commercial deal where there is usually a sticking point, and that is the amount of deposits and when does it go hard. Those are the two biggest things, every transaction without fail where there is a discussion. So to hear that you are preemptively setting expectations, and that's what I always tried to educate uh, my seller and buyer clients from the legal side on, and then even back on the brokerage day, full brokerage days of, you know, when you're representing a client, hey, let's set these expectations. So for you on the investing side to be doing that with these property owners, hey, just here's the expectation. We're going to do everything we can in good faith to meet this date. However, stuff happens that we can't control. And if that was to occur, 
occur, we're going ahead and deciding this is what's going to happen. Such an important conversation and not an easy one to have a lot of the times. What would you say are the largest objections you see uh, deal after deal when you guys are negotiating? Um, even the LOIs, right? Before, If you never even make it to the LOI, but at least in that negotiation, what do you think the biggest hiccups are these days? Yeah, I mean, speaking of these days in particular, these last six months, call it, is that non-refundable deposit. Is it refundable or is it non-refundable? A lot of, you know, you look a year, a year and a half, two years ago, you couldn't get a deal unless you had non-refundable deposit right up front. Deposits going hard day one. Our last two deals we closed on, we had refundable deposits until our due diligence period was over. And I think that's a big push and pull because... Uh, a lot of people like we're selling a deal right now and we don't want to go under contract, start to do all this legal work and rack up these attorney fees if the buyer, the, the buyer's not going to close. So maybe we'll ask for partial uh, hard money. So, you know, maybe we don't want to ask for the full 50,000 hard because again, that's negotiating. You got to give and you got to receive a little bit here and there. You give at different points, you, you're a little hard on others. Um, so we just requested a percentage of that to be hard. So the deposit amount and whether it's hard, refundable, non-refundable, like you said, Justin, I think is a big sticking point that we see in these LOIs, price aside, obviously. Um, and then the next one is definitely timeline. So, you know, if your deposit is refundable, how hard for, you know, how long is your due diligence period and how fast can you close? And that was another piece that we won the deal that we closed on today was uh, we said we closed in 30 days versus the other guy said 60 days, you know, so we were saying we we're going to work harder and faster to get this thing closed. It's a repeat lender that we, you know, we have a great team in place, but it's a repeat lender. We just closed a deal with uh, two months ago. So we already know their systems, their processes, and that's really attractive to a seller because a lot can change. As we can see today, the market can change overnight what it seems like almost, you know, interest rates can change overnight is what it seems. So time kills all deals. So the less we can make the timeline, the more opportunity and the, the more probability we're going to be able to close on a deal. So if we're saying 30 days will close versus someone else's 60 days, there's a lot more probability we're going to close because it's quicker and uh, that due diligence period. So, you know, we said we're going to close in 30 days. We're only going to do a 15 day due diligence. We're going to get in there, do what we need to do. The day we went under contract, we were on site doing our due diligence. So we, we don't, we don't want to push those dates out to 15 days or 30 days on the close. We want to hit those faster and uh, those are just there to protect us if it's something out of our control. When you talk about your your lenders, that you, your reoccurring lenders, so the debt side of the equation, are you doing institutional money? Is it private lending? Where, where are you guys at with that? Yeah, so we've done a mix of you know agency debt with Freddie and Fannie, and we've also uh, played with some uh, debt funds, so bridge debt essentially. And so this is a bridge lender, like I said, we closed with two months ago. Uh, with that deal, we were under contract to close for 45 days. We ended up closing in 32 days. So we closed much earlier. And that's because, again, systems and, pro systems and processes and having a good team backing you. And we were able to do that. And we felt that that bridge lender or you know that debt fund, so to speak, they had really good terms. They weren't too expensive. Fixed rate on all of our deals. So we're very comfortable that we're not going to get that floater or we have to pay a large cap on the, the rate lock or excuse me on the rate. And uh, so repeat, we've been able to do that. So to answer your question, like I said, we've done some agency loans. We've also done some bridge debt loans as well, um, but very safe and uh, under leverage bridge loans. I should make that very clear. So bridge loan debts typically are much shorter time frames. Are we talking 12 months, 24, 36, what are, or, or you get a full 60 on those? What are, what are you looking at on those? Yeah, so bridge is exactly what it sounds like. It's meant to bridge the gap from acquisition to stabilization. So all of our bridge debt we get is at least a two to three initial term, year term. So we have no prepayment penalty after 12 months, though. So the reason why I like this and having a two-year extension on all of our bridge debt is it gives us a multi-exit strategy. I think this is very important, especially in this climate. And it's fixed rate too. So we know exactly what the debt's going to be. So year one, obviously we have the bridge debt in place because we're executing the business plan and stabilizing the asset. There's no plan to exit there. Year two, now the prepayment penalty is gone. So we have three options. We can sell the assets. We get a great offer. We can keep the bridge debt in place because it's fixed rate. It's not adjusting on us, nothing's changing, or we can refinance the debt because that prepayment penalty is gone. So we have three options year two. Year three, same exact thing. It's a three-year term. We can keep the debt. We can refinance the debt. We can exit the deal. We've got multiple exit strategies. Year four, same exact thing. If I signed up for a three-year term with two one-year extensions, 
buy, excuse me, sell, refinance, keep the debt. Year four, same exact thing, but year five, now at the end of year five, we're out of extension, so we have to either sell or refinance. So it gives us those multiple exit strategies on the debt, and I think that's extremely important, especially in today's environment. The bridge debt is so much about relationship. Um, the underwriting is a little bit more laxed, obviously, than your agency institutional debt. So what if you're willing to share, what are you guys seeing from, from the rate there on the bridge debt? Where, where are you kind of at? Where, what's the fix? Yeah, so it's going to depend not only, uh, it's going to depend on the price of the actual loan proceeds. So if you're 10 million and above, you're going to get a lower rate. You're going to get maybe a little bit better proceeds because uh, there's not as much risk. It's a larger, more professional institutional asset. Once you get under 10 million, especially under 5 million, that bridge debt's going to get more expensive. You know, the yield isn't as great. You know, these bridge debts, they want to spend tens of millions of dollars, these debt funds, I should say. But if you're, you know, once you get under that 10 and 5 million, the amount of shops you can bring the debt to shrinks atrociously. So when you're under, again, 5 and 10, per, or five and 10 million, you're looking around right now anywhere from 6 to 7.5%. You might be able to get five and a half percent, especially because the 10 year treasury pulled back a little bit this week. So maybe you could find someone, but they might be a little more expensive on the fee side of things. So whenever I describe bridge debt and they say, oh, what's your rate? What's your rate? Well, there's other things you have to look at because there's many triggers you can pull or many levers you can pull on the back end to get that pricing. You know, what's your loan to value? What's your uh, in and out is what we kind of call it. You know, what's your uh, entry fee? What's your exit fee with that lender? Is it 1% and 2% on the on the uh, out? Or is it 1.5% and zero on the out? Or, you know, so those are all things we're looking at. So to answer your question, we're typically locking in our deals at 5.9, 6.9% fixed rate, 1.5% in, 0% out, no prepayment after 12 months. And we got lots of room on the leverage. If we want to go 70% loan to cost, 75% loan to cost, we're good to go. And we typically won't go over 75% loan to cost as we feel even that is kind of over leveraging ourselves in a position. Yeah, typically I'm comfortable around that 65%. You know, 70 is doable depending on how the rest of the numbers shake out. It sounds like you, you go pretty conservative on your underwriting, which I appreciate in this type of market especially. So, when so for again, those that don't understand, you, you see a, a percentage of debt, let's call it 70%. So that leaves 30% on the table that you raise in equity. Typically on your equity funds, how much, how, what percentage are you guys doing? 90, 95%? Where are you guys at with that? I'm sorry, repeat that question again. For the equity portion of the equation. So we'll take 70% worth of yep. debt that leaves 30% of the table. Of that 30%, are you guys raising 90, 95% equity in that 30%? What's kind of your floating number you like there? Yeah, you, you hit it right on the, you know, nail on the head, 90% roughly. So we're bringing in 10% of the equity in-house, whether that's, you know, our personal capital or, you know, Victory Capital Group as a whole, the whole group, their personal capital. So always have skin in the game. And we, these are great projects. We want to get in on these opportunities as well with our own personal capital. You know, I'm not putting money into the stock market, whether it's two years ago or 10 years ago or last month. Do I still have part of my portfolio in there? Most definitely. But I choose real estate all day. And uh, so we're taking up a percentage of that equity piece, um, at least 10% of the equity piece that's going from us. So you've got 70, let's call it 70% debt, then you're raising 20% of the remaining 30 and you're putting in 10. So for the LP, the limited partner in this equation, I'm assuming you're doing a 506C, a Reg D 506C type raise. Uh, of that 20%, are you doing 7% preferred with a 70-30 waterfall after or, or how are you guys doing that typically? Or do you, does it depend on the deal, I guess? Yeah, so it's definitely deal dependent, but typically we're doing... Uh, 70, 7%, 75-25, 2-2-2 for the fees, or 2-2-2-2. So that just means 7% PREF, 75% LP, 25% GP. And then when I'm saying two down the board, that's 2% acquisition, asset management, disposition, refinance. Um, so again, it's going to depend on the deal. Some deals we have a 1% uh, 1% fees across the board or 2% with 1% asset management or we did a super small deal and we needed the higher percentage, we did 3% on the uh, uh, acquisition because it was just such a small dollar amount and we kind of had to cover 
our costs essentially. So it's just going to be very deal specific, but typically that 7% and 75-25 is very typical for our model. Yeah. And I'm on your distribution list now, uh, thanks to the wonderful word of Twitter when you put out that tweet. So yes. I, I got to see the Hickory <laughs> deal that, that you, you guys did, and it was a great building. I'm also just a big fan of Hickory as well, because I went to Appalachian State University, and they're adding their, their new campus there. Um, they, there you they go. recently acquired a building, so I think Hickory is a great market. When, when you guys um, are seeing your deal flows come in for North Carolina specifically, are you seeing it um, come from uh, more of the outskirt regions? Or are you seeing the, the high population metros brokers still flowing you a majority percentage of your deals at this point? Yeah, so happy median. You know, we're, we're getting in those uh, dense, heavily populated, very expensive areas, but also those outskirts. And we'll only go so far out to those outskirts. So, for example, uh, Hickory. That's kind of our tipping point. We won't go any farther out. I believe we were sent a deal off market. I think it was uh, Lenore, uh, just outside of Hickory, about another half hour or so. And you know, population wasn't growing that quickly. Um, it was actually declining some years, and it was just too far from the Charlotte MSA where we felt like we wouldn't get that ripple effect of the growth of Charlotte. So off market deal we, was brought to us. We just turned it down immediately. We didn't even need to see financials or no pricing. We just knew it would be harder to bring investors to a market that is on the decline because when we present our offerings to our investors, we talk a lot about the market, location, location, location. You've heard about it a thousand times. So it's very difficult to say, hey, here's here's a great deal in a market that's declined 8% over the last 10 years. You know, That's an immediate turnoff to investors. That's an immediate turnoff for me. I wouldn't invest in a deal like that. And whenever you're you're thinking about that next market, are, are you are you just pretty much committed to a population perspective, or or let's say population isn't there yet, right? Like mm-hmm. what what is again that gut feeling trigger for you when you're looking at the trends? Is there a particular stat you like to see? Yeah, we're also looking at you know what jobs, what development is moving into the area, and for what reason. So maybe, like you said, it just hasn't had that population growth yet. But three giant industrial businesses are coming into the area that you know if you build it, they will come mentality. And in that area, we know it's going to happen. It's not always the case, but you have to do a lot of research because there's a lot of risk with that. So when we know there's an area that's proven and continued to increase, we're very comfortable. But if it's an area that hasn't had that proven track record yet, you know, we're, we're very weary and we're just getting started out. So the amount of risk we want to take up front is very low because we want to be here for the long haul. We want to have a good track record. We want to say we never lost, lost investor capital. I mean, if we're talking a super strong basis, then yeah, we, we might take a look at it, but it's got to be really strong where it just makes sense to us. And it has to check all the boxes for what type of assets we're looking for. Are you guys, is your group, Victory Capital Group, are you guys one of these major, you know, big players that's going to send me a 70-page deck? Or are you going to give me the straightforward sweet sauce, like in seven to ten slides? What are you guys doing there for your raises? You're going to get our overall, we call it the investor summary, is no more than 20 pages ever. And out of those 20 pages, you've got the cover page, meet the team, the disclaimer, the table of contents, you know, an end cover page. So there's five pages already we've used up. So you're getting 15, 10 to 15 pages of meat and potatoes, essentially. It's, you know, what's the upside? What's the downside? What are the returns? What do the financials look like? What are you guys doing for tax benefits? Who's managing it? Tell me about the location. Tell me about the asset. What's the business plan? So it's meat and potatoes. You're not going to get some large, elaborate business plan um, because, again, a confused mind takes no action is kind of what I like to say. And if you're loading up all this information to a newer investor or investor that just doesn't have time to read a, a 70, 100 page pitch deck, they're not going to take any action on that. Someone wanted us to partner with a deal on them and they sent us the pitch deck because they were in a pinch for raising the capital. And, you know, one of the reasons there's many, but one of the reasons I was like, yeah, I'm good. is just like he sent me this pitch deck and this thing was like this long, let me tell you. And it was just like, if you have to explain yourself that much, odds are the deal isn't that great. And uh, if you can get your point across quick and easy, investors would love it. And our investors do. You know, we have investors where if there's a small percentage we need filled or we have an investor back out last minute before closing, there's there's a great group of guys where I can just shoot a text to a few of them and say, hey, we need 50 or 100,000. And their reply is already wired to you. Let me know when you have the documents I can sign. Then we need to see anything. They just know. And uh, we built that trust with, you know, things like the investor summary deck, where that's the first place they're seeing about the deal, really. 
relationships again, right? We talked about that at the beginning, the power of relationships, especially when you're talking about um, purchasing commercial assets, you have to have it because at some point, everyone goes to these ebbs and flows of if you're in this space, if you're in this game, in the investing world of real estate, the market is cyclical and that there's a micro and macro to it all, right? So you, the power of relationships, again, being so key. So taking the Hickory property specifically, uh, you had an overcommitment on that, huh? You, you guys did pretty good on that pretty fast. L- less than a week. Yep. Wow. That's pretty good. How big it, is it's your- Small raise though. Small raise though, sure. I should say. But for your LPs, how, how many LPs are you, are you typically sending out to on average for, for each deal? Or what's your distribution list like? How many LPs? Yeah, so our bulk list is just over 750 investors. Those aren't people that have invested with us or are looking to do it right now. Those are people that have reached out, shown interest, signed up on our website, and in some form have breathed life into us that we think they're going to do something potentially. They're getting on that list. From there, you know, you have the short list where you've got people that say, hey, on the next one, I need a call, and we're going to make those personal calls. Or you've got the repeat investors who are going to get those calls regardless and just say, hey, you've invested with us on every single deal. Here's another opportunity. And we know without without a doubt they're going to invest on the next one. So, you know, you, you've got your funnel. You're starting out those 750. You get down to maybe a 20 or 30 percent open rate on the email. Then from there, who's attending the webinar? Who's reaching out? Who's on the short list? And then it spits out the call it 20 investors you have on a deal if it's a smaller raise. Whenever you, you're you're um, getting ready for, for that initial call, let's say, right? You sit on the deck, you're you're getting ready for that first webinar. What what's your what's your pregame? What, what are you doing? Are you pounding like some Red Bull beforehand or kind of <laughs> what's your go? No, none, because then I'll have to use the bathroom. That stuff goes through <laughs> me like crazy. So, you know, drinking a little bit of water, but not too much where I gotta get up and leave through the webinar because you know, we try to we do the presentation for thirty minutes, take Q and A's. But we had so many great questions on our last call. It was an hour and a half long. So our presentation was 30 minutes. We spoke to the investors for an hour, which is great. But, um, you know, I love the webinars. That's one of my favorite parts of doing a deal because I love talking to people like this, Justin. And I love answering questions and, and presenting. So, you know, my partners and I, or partner, I should say, will do a few dry runs of the presentation, kind of assign slides pick we're going to pick and choose here but we're not spending too much time to prep for these things because again they're short we're comfortable with who we're presenting to we're comfortable with the product and we should know it really well but we don't have to look at a slide uh so you know the pregame, so to speak is pretty easy it's more of like just pounding some emails and oh you know it's it's eight o'clock let's get on the call and make it happen and the questions you get, so I, so I'm, I'm imagining, um, obviously they're about numbers, right? So mm-hmm. whenever, what are you seeing on the trend? Are we talking? Okay, you're get you're telling me you're getting your seven percent preferred, but let me let's talk about cap rate or or what is this internal rate right here? This IRR you've got projected on a five year exit. What are you seeing as those those most common questions these days from your LPs? Yeah, so you know the the big elephant in the room has been the rate, obviously. You know when we. When I started with the intro of the webinar, hey, you know, a big piece we're going to talk about is current economic environment and the, the you know, the current interest rate environment. And so I, I let people know we're going to talk about that. We're going to realize on that um, we're not going to ignore it or try to push over it. So and a, a big piece is our cap rate as well. We, we take a lot of pride in how we analyze our deals and where we calculate. So, for example, um, you're, you're obviously familiar with North Carolina, you know, CNB class assets and what they're trading at. And I track all that too. So, you know, if we're buying a deal at, let's say a 4.8 cap or 4.6 cap, we're going to make our exit cap rate at least 6% or higher. Um, on our Hickory deal, we plan to exit that deal at a 6.20% cap rate in five years. Um, I find that to be pretty strong for the asset, the location, the year built. Um, you know, we've got a pool, we've got solar panels on the roof, we've got an elevator, we've got five laundry facilities, one on each floor, a leasing office, a very attractive area where there's a Chick-fil-A and a Starbucks uh, 0.2 miles away, and we're surrounded by medical offices, which are lots of great jobs. So, you know, we're very comfortable in that aspect, and we're going to look at the greater market. We're going to look at the price per door. So we don't just look at the exit cap rate. When we throw an exit cap rate in there based on our assumptions, we also say, well, can we sell this at 135 or 140 a door in five years? Is that a doable number? You know, if it said 200,000 a door in five years based on that 6.2% exit cap rate, I tell you, no, I think you're crazy. But if you say, okay, in five years, we can exit this at 135 a door. Well, an asset next door just sold at 130 a door today. 
So we're very comfortable we can achieve that number in probably two years, if not a year. And uh, so that kind of, we, we're always assuming our exit cap rate is going to be significantly or somewhat higher than our entry cap rate. So if we're buying at a five, you are going to assume we're going to at least exit at a six. If we're buying at a you know, 5.2, we got to be above six. It's just, it's math. It makes sense. We have to assume the economy is always going to push back or the market's going to uh, decrease, which causes, you know, interest rates to increase in the standpoint. That way, if it stays the same or compresses even more, we're going to blow our projections out of the water. Now, you, you that, that's being conservative, by the way, for those who don't understand that concept, that's for being conservative on financials, which is good when you're talking about trying to predict what a market is going to do multiple years down the road. Nobody's got a crystal ball. Nobody knows. Um, but at the end of the day, it's about trust. And uh, I find that, um, you know, I, depending on the dollar amount, depending on the relationship, people will, will trust you once. But after yep. that, if you don't deliver, that's when that trust runs out very fast. Good luck getting a phone call back or a response exactly. from anybody after that. So uh, I can't fault you for that whatsoever. Uh, what are you seeing from the management perspective of properties these days? Um, obviously, inflation being a real conversation. Are you seeing management companies increase their uh, cost per unit um, to manage or, or what, what's that been like for you? Yeah, so it's definitely going to depend on the management style. Are you going with the flat percentage of gross collected rents or is there a payroll involved with a small percentage of gross, gross collected rents? So, you know, if we're hiring someone at eight and a half percent of gross collected rents on a smaller asset where they're not on site and it's, you know, it can't support a full payroll, that's artificially going to increase as the rents increase. So that charge isn't going to change there. Um, I haven't seen too much of that payroll piece being increased too much. We already assume that it's going to increase about two to three percent annually. So we have that built into our you know calculations it, to an extent. Could it be four percent? Could it be eight percent? Could it be matching CPI? Most definitely. And we'll have to have that conversation when that you know rises. But for the most part, haven't seen property management increase too much. I know a lot of property management companies have uh, increased their rates because it's harder to find uh, talent essentially on their team. And so that's a big piece. We haven't experienced it yet, but I'm sure it's there. And there's there's tiers to it as well, right? The more doors you have, the better price break you're going to get. So let's take like oh, the yeah. Hickory unit. Was was it 44 units? How many units was the Hickory one? I'm trying to remember. 44 right. units. 44 yep. units. So did you guys project a fixed basis per door or did you do um, a payroll plus, plus fixed basis? How did you do that for the property management on that one? Yeah. So what we actually did was we're doing 4.5% of gross collected rents. So not other income, just the rents. And then outside of that is the actual uh, maintenance costs. So whatever the maintenance cost tech is to have on site, if that's $500 a, a week, and then uh, just splitting renewals and new lease fees. So uh, on every new lease, I think we pay $100 or $50 on renewals. It's 50 or 100 as well. So that's satisfying the management company. They've got scale in the area. They can survive with a, a, a lower percentage than maybe, you know, 6%. And then we pass, it's basically a pass through for those maintenance fees because that's a big piece. You know, there's a lot of maintenance to be done on these properties when you have a pool, when you have an elevator, when you've got la multiple laundry facilities, there's also going to be, you know, lots of expense to operate that. So we're, we're pretty comfortable at the 4.5%. It also incentivizes our property manager to work because the more money they make, the more money they're going to make at the end of the day. So when I say that, that means the more collections they have, the more money they are going to make. When you, we look at your expenses overall in, in a deal, or, uh, on average, percentage of expenses to uh, gross potential rents, let's say, are you guys uh, sub 30%? Are you more at 35%, 25%? What, what do you guys see in these days on your projections? Yeah, so on projections, we're about 35%, 40%. So if you see people in multifamily, obviously excluding you know debt service, asset management, uh, CapEx reserves, well, actually, we include our CapEx reserves in that. Um, if, the, if someone's below 30%, it's either a brand new development deal where the expenses aren't going to be there um, or they're just shortchanging themselves on the expenses. So I definitely think you need to be above 30%. We're never lower than 30% on any of our deals. Like I said, we're usually 35% uh, or 40 The only space I can really see someone being below that 30% is like storage or industrial or like retail where the expenses aren't that high. So, you know... Obviously, as you get a little bigger on deals, there's some expenses that get broken out more because it's across more units. 
So it might make a little bit more sense if there's a lower percentage. But again, if you're below 30% before you know that uh, debt service, take a look at those numbers again because they might be too conservative or excuse me, too aggressive. Dante, give me give me the big, hairy, audacious goal. What are you doing, man? You taking over the world or what? What's the plan? Yeah, so I always get this question, like, are you guys looking for $100 million in assets under management, 10,000 units? You know, we, we haven't really made a long-term goal or, or what we're looking to do. This year, was the goal was $10 million, uh, new assets under management, so taking down $10 million worth of deals, and we're just about there, and we're halfway through the year. So we're beating that expectation, but for me... You know, every day I really love what I do. I enjoy it. It's never like I wake up and I'm crawling out of bed like, oh, I got to go get on a call or I got to go analyze a property or talk to an investor. I love what I do. I've got a great passion for it. If you couldn't tell, people, if they talk to me for a few minutes, they know I have a passion for it. And so, you know, I want to be able to just provide for my family, be comfortable. There's no billion-dollar house I'm looking to live in or massive net worth. I just want to be comfortable, be able to provide, bless others and uh, enjoy the ride, enjoy what I'm doing. Never say I'm really working, but enjoying. All right, Dante Belmonte of uh, Victory Capital Group, uh, the guy who takes properties that are already cash flowing, gets even more cash to put even more cash in his investors' pockets. Uh, we appreciate the time. Uh, Dante, if people wanna reach out to you, do you recommend email? Do you like Twitter? What do you, what do you like to, how do you like to connect with people? Yeah, Justin, really appreciate you having me on the show, and thank you for letting me plug this in here. So our website, you can visit victorycapgroup.com. So that's victorycapgroup.com. You can reach me on email, Dante at victorycapgroup.com. And then, you know, where we uh, connected on Twitter there, I've got that anonymous page at Multifamily Madness. And, you know, I like to go the anonymous route with that because it really puts the focus on, you know, the, the business, the project, the the, the real estate. It's not on myself and what my kind of perspective is, but open up a community for others. So if you're on there, definitely uh, link up with me. Uh, we have some great discussions, some funny ones, some fun ones, and it's kind of a place to blow off steam and just joke around where someone won't take it too serious, I hope. <laughs> it's, it's always good when you just had a tough day and you, you just check out the Twitter and you see some crazy meme, right? Like that just yeah, makes oh, you yeah. smile in this crazy world right now, which is fun Most to be able definitely. to laugh about. So appreciate the time. Justin Kazepis, Today's Real Talk, todaysrealtalk.com, 844-STUDIO-4. Give a call. We still got time to answer those questions. We'll be right back. Today's Real Talk, todaysrealtalk.com, Justin Kazepis, 844-STUDIO-4, 844-STUDIO-4. We've got the questions in for today that we're going to be able to answer. Uh, if you uh, want to shoot us a message, info at todaysrealtalk.com. Even if we don't get to your question today, uh, next episode we will try to get to it. Info at todaysrealtalk.com. So we picked out a couple here uh, that we've we've got in line. What is a good deal in real estate? Ooh, so assuming you're talking about the numbers. What is a good deal in real estate? I wish that there was a simplistic answer to that. Man, if, if, if we had a couple hours, we sat down uh, with some mojitos and uh, probably some barbecue, we'd be able to talk about that in depth. But what is a good deal? I'll tell you, on average right now, um, what we see, if you invest into a real estate syndication or an investment fund, you're probably seeing somewhere between 6 and 7% return. And it's funny because a lot of people will say, well, Justin, that doesn't seem like a lot. I, I get advertisements all the time for you know, 15, 20, 25%. Uh, but there's a lot of risk, right? So, so when you see those extremely high returns, that likely is an extremely risky uh, situation or asset or project to invest in. You got to remember like what we talked about in the beginning of the show, real estate is a low risk asset because of the demand for it. So keep that in mind. What is a good deal? And a lot of it is going to depend. Are you wanting cash now? Are you wanting to uh, have an equity multiple like you believe an area is just going to boom in the next five years and you think that you can triple the price, right? So there's a lot of things like that you got to consider. Uh, but anybody selling you more than, let's say, 6 to 7% preferred returns, then I would be weary and I would be extremely cautious and I would probably want, I definitely would have, somebody else who is not connected and didn't find that project 
to look into it and analyze it alongside of you. So just keep that in mind. Some things that are too good to be true, that seem too good to be true, they are too good to be true. I learned that one the hard way a few times. Do you think rents will go up or down over the next couple of years? Wow, crystal ball time today. Uh, do I think rents will go up or down over the next couple of years? It's so market specific. If I look at North Carolina as a whole right now, I would say generally speaking, if there was a way to dollar cost average across the board in the state of North Carolina, I think they go up. How high they go up and how fast do they continue to rise becomes the question. So in a normal market where you don't have inflation out of control and you're not having to um, include certain aspects to balance the market back out, let's say a typical average market has a 3% increase in rents on average. I think that will continue because of how low the supply is. Now, again, at what rate it will increase, I don't know. Um, that is going to be very market specific where I think some you'll have 5% increases on average. I think some you may continue to see 10, 15, 20%. If the demand for a particular area coupled with low supply continues, this conversation leads to a different one of, okay, how many units becomes enough to normalize the market? And again, that's going to be market specific based on the demand. If jobs continue to pour into North Carolina, which I certainly hope they do, I certainly hope that our state leaders, um, our local leaders and local municipalities continue to make good decisions to attract businesses to come in then I, I, I think we need a lot more units than we're anticipating. But where I, I'm beginning to be cautious is new development of multifamily units. I, I don't think we've reached a, a, a critical mass level of number of units because, again, population is continuing to increase. However, rents are becoming so expensive in particular markets that I do think, laterally speaking, you will see a the radius begin to grow of where people are willing to live in order to afford living in particular areas. And when that residential, I don't want to call it an exodus because they're still in North Carolina, they're still relatively close to those particular centralized locations. Let's let's put the two on, on that are on top in North Carolina, Charlotte and Raleigh. And I know I'm not putting that in any particular order. Um, there's different stats for each market that, that, depending on how you look at it. Uh, as people continue to um, or consider moving farther away from those central points where they work, you will see uh, residential begin to uptick and closely followed or potentially up front, more commercial then begins to uptick. Um, so generally speaking, the short answer to my long and belabored point is yes, I do think rents will continue to go up. Um the interesting part is, will when will interest rates balance out? And it may happen tomorrow, for all I know. Uh, that is what is, in my opinion, creating a larger disparagement between homeowners, those who are homeowners and those who are not. Because if interest rates continue to rise, and let's say you're a cash buyer, you don't care what the interest rate is because you're buying a property in cash and you have no debt on it, so it doesn't matter to you what the interest rate is. That's not true for a vast majority of people in our country. Most people have to get a mortgage in order to purchase a property. And if you do, you care very much what those interest rates are. And if the cost to borrow money, right, the expense of borrowing money goes higher and higher and higher, and what that does is it takes you out of the possibility of being able to purchase a home yourself. Thus, you continue renting. And the more people that continue renting, the higher the demand for renting becomes and continues to grow. If there is an inadequate supply, right, a greater demand than the supply that's available, prices will continue to rise. How did you get started in real estate? Wow. Okay. Uh, crystal ball now personal. Um how I got started in real estate. So I grew up in real estate. My dad um, was in real estate as a, a real estate broker and also a, a mortgage lender. Um, began in the 80s in California. 
Um, and then my family moved here to North Carolina when I was very, very young. So North Carolina is home for me. And uh, I've always been in real estate from the brokerage side. I got, I got my real estate broker license in 2012, uh, became an attorney in 2015, and uh, began doing some uh, purchasing and being in uh, single family residences. I liked rentals. Um, I really like, at this point, I really like dirt. Uh, again, God's not making any more. So uh, I, I kind of put dirt similar to water, right? We, we kind of have to have it. So uh, I, I've been a broker, mostly representing buyers and sellers, and then switched to being a closing attorney when I started my own firm in 2015, sold that firm in 2021, and uh, s- pretty much exclusively focusing on real estate development at this point, in addition to uh, some other commercial legal aspects that um, non-related to residential or closings. Um, but yeah, keeping a pulse on it from a legal perspective, but, but definitely still on the, uh, development side and got started, uh, through my family. So, uh, multi-generational wealth is what real estate creates, uh, historically speaking. And I hope to continue that for my family. And if it's something you're interested in, happy to answer the questions we can. 844-STUDIO-4, Justin Kazepas, today's Real Talk. Thanks for joining us. We look forward to seeing you next time.